Aren't you glad you came to church today? I hope so. I hope that your focus on Christ, His great work on the cross, has done nothing but refresh you, encourage you, and strengthen you in your walk. To further strengthen us in our walk, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Matthew's Gospel and chapter 3. We are in a series here. If you're new to us, uh, we do welcome you so much and are so glad you found your way here. We are in the Gospel of Matthew. We had a wonderful weekend, didn't we, with Larry Moyer last weekend, our outreach weekend. If you checked your card, and according to my count, 28 regular attenders at Fellowship Bible Church checked their card with Larry Moyer last week saying that they had reconfirmed their faith or for the first time had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So if you understood what he was saying, that's what you did. Whether you checked your card or not, if you need a refresher course in the basic foundational truths of the Christian life, I invite you to a brand new class that I'm going to start next weekend, next Sunday, in response to the check marks on those cards, because we just have a bunch of people that need to just be reminded of some simple basic truths now on how to grow in Christ. We're calling it the Foundations class. It's going to be out here in D2. I'm going to teach it most of the time, and we're going to go at least six weeks. You come out and be encouraged, especially if you checked your card. I'd love for you to be there. And if you know someone who attended last weekend and their heart was moved by the gospel, try to get them to come out. All right? And I know that it's not always easy to, to get someone to come to church, but you encourage them, encourage them with this new class. Maybe you heard about the old lady, I shouldn't say it that way, the elderly woman. Uh, the elderly woman who walked into the lo- her local little country church and uh, at the back door was just a friendly usher. He greeted her. He helped her up the flight of stairs. You know how those little white churches always have stairs going up to them? And he says to this elderly lady, where would you like to sit, she said. He said politely. She said, in the front row, please. He said to her, ma'am, I need to tell you, you really don't want to do that. He said, the pastor is really boring. She looked up at him and she said, do you happen to know who I am? He said, no, ma'am. She said, I'm the pastor's mother, indignantly. He looked at her and he said, well, ma'am, do you happen to know who I am? She said, no. He said, let's keep it that way. (laughs) The point being, you just never know who's going to show up and where they're going to sit. And as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 3, we are immersed in the middle of this strange preacher, John the Baptist's public ministry, And on this day, Jesus shows up. Now, it's not church, but it was his ministry. And because he had a baptism of repentance, and two weeks ago we were reminding ourselves by answering some questions, what was the significance of John's baptism? All right, if Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet, and he hadn't, okay, the only spoken words that we know of recorded for us in the gospel before today of our Lord Jesus speaking was when he was 12 years old in the temple, recorded for us in other gospels. Jesus has had no public ministry. For all we know, the record shows that he has been busy in his father Joseph's carpenter shop about the menial task, but the most important task of working wood and being a blessing through the carpenter shop. And then on this day, 
As we look at our text, beginning with verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3, it says, all of a sudden, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. We don't know what day it is. We don't know how long John has been ministering. We don't know too much about the details, but we know everything we need to know. John is down there crying out, remember his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was a forerunner. He was the announcement guy. He was telling everyone, you had better wake up because one greater than I is coming. And let your eyes look right above that in verses 10, 11, and 12. I saw that it, in my profound statement some weeks ago that 10 comes before 11 and 12 comes after 11 made a zipped around social media a little bit with some mockery. I saw all of that, Ben Baker and everyone else. I don't do Facebook, but I have people who watch it for me. You better be careful what you say about your pastor out there. But if you do notice in verse 10, which comes before 11, he's warning that every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, the fruit of righteousness, is going to have the axe put to it and be put in the fire. That's a warning of judgment. And then in verse 11, John says what he does. I baptize you with water for repentance. An indicator that you have come to a place where you don't want the axe put to your root. You don't want to be thrown in the fire for a lack of the fruit of repentance in your life. You want to show that you love God and that you're obeying God and you're walking with God. And so these people, as they had an Old Testament understanding of the commandments, heard and understood to the degree that they knew that they were sinners and they wanted to repent of that sin and that they wanted to obey God. And so John would put them in water and baptize them. It's why he hung around the Jordan so that he could go in the water. You'll see in a minute they would go down in, as was the custom, and duck down in the water and come back out of the water. A picture of cleansing, perhaps, is implied among the Jewish people. They understood well, for example, a passage in Ezekiel that talked about the cleansing of water that represented a righteous life. So they would come up out of the water to say, I'm one of John's followers. I have repented of my sin. I don't want to be like everyone else. And so it was this baptism of repentance of sin. Repentance means, remember, I have come face to face with my sin. I agree with God that it is heinous and horrific and that I don't want that put on me. And I'm going to turn away from my sin and follow another path. In fact, I'm going to turn away from sin and unto righteousness. And I have turned around and am following a new course. I have repented, I've turned away from it, and I have implemented a new lifestyle as a result of that repentance. It's a changed life because of a hard attitude before God over the guilt of sin. So then that leads us to our third question. Um, We had a couple questions we were answering, if you recall. What was the significance of John's baptism? I just explained it again, this baptism indicating a repentant heart before God, acknowledging that I need to live for God and get rid of my sin. They didn't understand the cross yet. They didn't understand the shed blood of Christ. They didn't understand his broken body. They knew Messiah was coming. And then there's this baptism of, of, of the Holy Spirit. We, we went to Acts chapter 2 and we saw how tongues of fire and Jesus himself in Acts chapter 1 talks about that the Holy Spirit would come and baptize them. We've talked about the definition of the word baptism. It means to be covered up. It means to be plunged into. It means to be immersed. Okay, it doesn't really mean to be sprinkled at all. It means to be totally immersed in. And so the Holy Spirit comes and immerses himself in the body of Christ. Acts chapter 2 is where that happens with tongues of fire. And then we talked about this 
um, baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the end of verse 11, and baptize you a second baptism with fire. That's where I was referencing that in verse 10, he's talking about being thrown into the fire. And in verse 12, John goes on with his message, his winnowing fork, talking about Jesus, is in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor, gather his wheat into his barn. The chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So in 10 and 12, he's warning about the judgment of fire. It seems to me that it is most likely, I can't prove it, I wouldn't get my head cut off for it, but that in verse 11, when it says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, that's the immersion of the Holy Spirit on the body of Christ, prophesied and fulfilled in Acts 1 and 2. And then this baptism of fire is a warning that if you don't, identify with Christ, if you don't receive the filling of the Holy Spirit, if you don't follow after God, if you don't repent, there is a baptism of fire that will envelop you, an immersion of fire. That's how I take it. Bible scholars, um, with all transparency, uh, you need to know Bible scholars disagree on what that, what he's talking about, that fire there. That's how I take it, based on context. So now we come to our third question, okay? What was the significance of the baptism of John? What is, what is baptism of the Holy Spirit and what is baptism of fire? I lump those together as our second question, our third question today. So why in the world does Jesus get baptized by John? Because think about it. If John's baptism is a baptism of the repentance of sin... What does it say about Jesus to come down to the Jordan and get in the water and ask John to baptize him? Isn't the obvious conclusion then that Jesus is recognizing, perhaps even just in his humanity, his own sinfulness, and he wants to repent of his human sinfulness? Maybe he swore in the carpenter shop when he was 13 years old one time. So he has sin on his record. Well, I don't think that's what it means at all. And I believe that, and we will talk more about this next week as we move into chapter 4. Don't miss these messages. They are very important as we unfold the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4 next week is going to introduce the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And we will deal with that most fascinating question. How could Jesus, if he were sinless, be tempted to sin? Was it a real temptation? And could Jesus have sinned if he had wanted to? How do you deal with that? It's really kind of puzzling thing. And was it then a real temptation? Because Hebrews says that we have a high priest who, who is with the Father that we can go to at any time who can sympathize with our weaknesses because on all fronts he was tempted like we were. So if it was legitimate, when it was like us, could he sin, could he not sin? And then how do we deal with temptation and can Satan tempt us in the same way that he tempts Jesus? Chapter 4 is an incredible chapter. So to the point today to answer this question, beginning with verse 13, let's read the rest of the chapter as our text, and then let me click off for you what I want to suggest are six reasons why Jesus was baptized by John, and I trust it will be a challenge, it will be um, an important, helpful study for you as, as we look at God's Word together. Then Jesus, verse 13, Matthew 3, came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. All right, We don't know when, we know where, uh, we don't know the timeline. How long has John been ministering? Probably at least six months, if not a year. John would have prevented him saying, Wait, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. I would suggest that verse 14 is a statement of the impeccability or the sinlessness of Christ right there. John immediately recognizes when Jesus walks down to the Jordan, and can you kind of see Jesus clicking out of his sandals a little bit? 
getting in the edge of the water. Perhaps John had been preaching, and he preached hellfire and brimstone to these guys, and he's calling out the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and, and he's just all over them. And then he looks up, and here comes Jesus. As far as we know, this is the first encounter that John and Jesus have personally. We have no record that they were ever together. It's possible that they were. They were first cousins. Or the first cousins once removed, I think. And so, don't, don't let your mind worry about that. <clears throat> and so, here comes Jesus. John's in the river, at the edge of the Jordan at least. And Jesus comes to John. John recognizes who Jesus is. And he immediately says, in John's Gospel account, he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the Lamb of God who has some sin and better get baptized by the baptism of repentance to indicate his forgiveness of sin so he can do his earthly ministry. No, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He had no sin. John immediately says to him in our Matthew passage here, John would have prevented him. No, I'm not going to baptize you. What are you thinking about? I need to be baptized by you, John says to Jesus. In other words, you don't need my baptism of repentance. Why? Because there's no sin of which to repent. Then we read on. But Jesus, verse 15, answered him, Let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I don't know 100% what that phrase means, but it at least means this. It's right for me to do this, and I do everything that's right. I fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was righteousness and truth personified. And so he did what was right. And Jesus tells John, this is a good thing. This is a righteous act. And I do everything that is righteous. I fulfill all righteousness. So let's do it. So I'm thinking in my mind now. All right. This is not a baptism of repentance like John's baptism. There's some other things going on here. With Jesus. Let's continue to read. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so, verse 15 again, now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So then John consented. He, the personal pronoun he, at the end of verse 15 is John. He says, Okay, well, if this is the right thing to do, let's do it. I'm all about doing what's right, John says. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. <clears throat> And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. These verses uh, unfold into some pictures or some information. As you stop and ponder what's happening here, it kind of shows us why Jesus did what he did. When we look in John chapter 1 in just a minute, beginning with verse 34, you're also going to see that part of what happened here was, was evidently prophesied to John before this ever happened when he was wondering. Remember, John was a prophet to the caliber of Elijah and Elisha, these kinds of prophets. And remember that Jesus said of John himself, he's the greatest of all men that ever lived. He was a great prophet. And so somewhere along the line, you'll see in a minute when we turn there in John's Gospel, chapter 1, that he was told that the one upon whom the Spirit of God in the form of a dove lights, that's who the Son of God is. Well, let me begin with my suggested list of why I think um, Jesus was baptized by John and some of the lessons that we can learn from it as we conclude chapter 3 study this morning. The first thing that came to my mind was that in many ways, and I don't think this is a heavyweight reason, 
But I think number one is that it was an affirmation of John and his message. It was an affirmation of John and his message. We don't know how many people witnessed this, but when Jesus came down and had John baptize him in the river, at the least it gave credibility to John's ministry, didn't it? That John was right and Jesus was coming and everything John said was true. So number one, I think that this moment represented on the part of Christ towards John, at least a little bit, an affirmation of John's ministry. Number two, I think, as we see, let's look at our text now. So Jesus answered, this is to fulfill all righteousness. Let's do this. Okay, and he he consented. John consents. Now verse 16 for our text. He then says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. Second thing I would suggest is that the reason Jesus was baptized by John is that it was an act of preparation for his public ministry. It was an act of preparation for his public ministry. What do I mean by that? One of the things that happened here is that as the heavens open, the Holy Spirit comes upon Christ. Now, this is a little bit difficult. Anytime you talk about the Godhead and how they relate to one another, so because we have one God, right? Behold, the Lord our God is one Lord, one God. But we know the Bible teaches clearly that, he, that there's the Father, there's the second member of the Godhead, Jesus, the Son, and there's the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches that each of them are distinct from one another, that they are personalities. Even the Holy Spirit is a personality, even though he doesn't have a body. He can think on his own. He's independent. And yet, they are all together one. Go figure. It's not an easy concept. Okay? But we are not pluralists or polytheists. Okay? We believe we are monotheists. One God who represents himself in three parts. Sometimes when you're in kids' Sunday school, the teacher will hold up the egg, right? And he'll say, this is an egg. Well, if you break the egg and hold up the shell, you would still say, this is an egg. You might say, a shell... You have the white and you have the yolk, right? Three different parts, all one to make up an egg. Or sometimes we represent H2O, back to chemistry class. It's the only one I can remember, H2O. But H2O can can be manifested in three ways, can it? It can be a gas, it can be a solid in ice, and it can be a liquid, it can be water. Somebody just said, oh, that's what H2O is, yeah. So... These three parts. So we won't let this boggle our mind too much. Listen, if we could explain everything there is to explain about God, how big of a God would we have? If if you come to Fellowship Bible Church and you're able to say, my pastor can explain everything about God, you have a mighty small God, considering who your pastor is. Unbelievable. But isn't it interesting how, how we are so dissatisfied with letting things just be there. The Godhead is something we ought to just let be there. And we come to God in faith, believing that He is. That's who He is. That's how the Bible represents Him. But stop and think for just a minute. Here Jesus is in the water. The heavens open. The dove comes down upon Him. And this is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. What's going to happen in chapter 4? I referenced it already. Immediately... Jesus is going to be taken out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He's not going to eat. Throughout the ministry of Christ, doesn't he get fatigued? 
Throughout the ministry of Christ, he goes hungry. Throughout the ministry of Christ, he grows weary. He manifests so many parts of our frail humanity, even to the point where in the garden, before the evening of going to the cross, what is he doing? He's sweating, as it were, sweat drops of blood in agony, begging God, just like we do sometimes, Lord, if it would be your will, please let this go somewhere else. Who ministers to Christ throughout his earthly ministry? The Holy Spirit. And I would like to suggest that one of the reasons that this baptism took place was at this moment when this Spirit, when the Holy Spirit descends upon him, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus to empower him in his humanity for his earthly ministry. To comfort him, to guide him, to encourage him. The Godhead was at work. Reason number three that I would suggest as we read here is notice that he came up out of the water and it was a dove that descended. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, the, the Bible textually, exegetically, doesn't explain to us what is all at work here. We know that the, whole, that the dove is, is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit and he comes up out of the water Now, one of the things that we teach at Fellowship Bible Church, and partly based on this passage and then on another that I'll show you in just a minute, is that one of the reasons that we baptize by going into the water and coming up out of the water is a a, a part of the evidence is that Jesus himself went down into the water and came up out of the water. Do you see the language? Now, you can argue that he waded in and that John picked up some water and sprinkled him or that John took a pitcher and poured him and that it was just best to stand in the water. I think the natural understanding of the language and this idea of going into in the Greek is the idea he went into, he was enveloped by. He went down into the water and then the idea that he came up out of the water is is picturing more than just walking in and walking out to get sprinkled or poured. Now, let's think about a dove in Scripture. If we were to go back to the Old Testament, before the cross, what is it that brings the remission of sin? Apart from the... Hebrews says, apart from the shedding of what? Apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. For some, that might be difficult to understand. But when you recognize the fact that the wages of sin is always death, the point is that when somebody sins, something's got to die. Okay, because because the law of the spiritual universe established by God is that the wages of sin is death. So if you sin, something's got to die. You've got to die or something's got to die. So that was how the Old Testament sacrificial system worked. And if you would read in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, and you would read under the Mosaic law, we don't have time to go there, but you can kind of picture this stuff. Regularly they had their feasts and they had their sacrifices. And if you had it, you had to get a bull calf without blemish, right? Or a goat, sometimes a goat, sometimes a lamb, a lamb that was without blemish. But what did poor people bring? What were you allowed to bring for these sin offerings? And for these atonement offerings where blood had to be sprinkled to image and to symbolize that something died in my place and that I recognized I was a sinner. And before a holy God, I did, according to his Old Testament instruction, sprinkled the blood on the altar, symbolizing that that blood covered my sin in the eyes of God and, and kept me safe until future, many years future, Jesus Christ would pay the price once and for all as the ultimate perfect lamb on the cross for that sinfulness. What did poor people bring 
They didn't have a bull calf. They couldn't afford it. They didn't have a goat. They didn't have a lamb. They brought a dove. And one of the things that I think, this is, I think, you know, the idea is that this dove comes and the symbolism of going into the water and out of the water is that Jesus Christ is picturing, and so number three is it was a prophetic picture and representation of his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? I can't prove this textually, but it seems to me as I study the passage that that really makes sense. That one of the things Jesus was doing was picturing himself as it were a dove, the good for the weakest and the poorest. And he goes into the water, the, the death of baptism, into the water, symbolizing his burial. And then the third day he's going to rise again. And so, so that's why we use Romans chapter 6. Will you turn there? Romans chapter 6 in your Bible, verses 1 through 4. Notice that Paul, in teaching about the forgiveness of sin and who we are in Christ, uses... The concept of a spiritual baptism. Alright? This is a little bit hard to follow, but stay with me. Chapter 6 of Romans, beginning with verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, the answer is, by no means, God forbid. He had been teaching them that wherever there was sin, grace did much more abound. Aren't you thankful for that? So if you can go in your mind, a place that is blotted out in the mind of God, to your point of most heinous sinfulness, at that point of the worst point in your life where you've ever sinned, how horrible that sin is, grace at that moment abounded even greater than your sin. That's what Paul's saying. So now he's saying, if, if the more I sin, the more grace abounds, maybe I ought to just keep on sinning, hey, hey, hey. Because isn't that how the flesh works? And in this body of death, before our sanctification is complete in heaven, we still have that part of us where the flesh is drawn to sin in the old ways. Go ahead and sin because grace will continue to abound. Paul says, God forbid. And now here he's going to tell you why he said, God forbid. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What's he talking about? He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the spiritual reality of us being immersed in Christ for our identity. The idea is that we are now covered with Christ. The word baptizo means to plunge into, to be covered up with. It's another reason why we immerse. The idea is that Christ's death covered us and we are identified and immersed, plunged into his death with him. Well, how did that happen? It happened over 2,000 years ago. It's in the mind of God. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, you received once and for all the completed work of Christ on your behalf. And at that moment, by faith, through God's grace, you are born again in the mind of God. The moment he makes you his child, you have been immersed in the death, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's why Paul also taught, I am, Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. 
I am identified in the mind of God once and for all as being immersed, baptizoed in Christ, spiritually speaking. And so Paul says, you don't go on sinning because you are now immersed in Christ's death. And he paid the price. Look what he says. Verse 4, and we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. At Fellowship Bible Church, we hold to the view of baptism that it is symbolic and that it is by immersion because it has to do with the, the spiritual picture. It has to do with the physical representation of a spiritual reality that's gone on in us. That we go into the water and we go down into the water representing dying with Christ, buried with Christ, rising again with Christ, and the water washes away. And it comes up in newness of life. That moment doesn't save. Your faith is what saves you. Somebody always wants to ask the question, do I have to be baptized to get into heaven? The answer is no. You say, wait, uh, um, but they believed and were baptized in the New Testament all the time. Yep. So we get, we get God's word going here and you get convicted and you accept Jesus Christ as your savior from your sin. Will you bow your head and you say, God, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus substituted in for me by faith. I, I place myself in him and once and for all, I'm your child. My sin is forgiven. And you say, let's go down by the pavilion. We're going to have a baptism. And on the way down there, you get bit by a rattlesnake and you die. Do you go to heaven or not? Of course. Baptism is just the outward expression of the inward reality of what's happened. I will say this. In our New Testament, as we study it, there's no such thing as an unbaptized believer in Christ. You will not find one testimony. And and what you will find is that when the lights turn on and people accept Christ as their Savior, they always want to be baptized right away. Well, that's reason number three. It was a prophetic picture and representation of his death, burial, and his resurrection. Let me click off the others as we look at this scripture, and I think you've got the point here, and we will go on to chapter four next week. Number four, the reason that Jesus allowed himself to be baptized by John, number one, it was an affirmation of John and his message. That's a little reason. Number two, maybe a little bit bigger reason, is that it was an act of preparation for his public ministry as the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Number three, it was a prophetic picture and representation of his future death, burial, and resurrection. And now number four, it was a clear confirmation of his identity. I want you to get this. It was a clear confirmation of his identity. As he's baptized, notice the text. This is easy to see. The Spirit of God is descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And now in verse 17, a voice from heaven then shouts out and says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So another thing that happened at his baptism was that there was confirmation of his identity as the Son of God. I assume that everybody present could hear that. Turn quickly to John's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 34. And let me show you what I referenced earlier. John 1.34, and notice what John said. Let's pick it up with verse 31. I myself, John 1.34, I myself, this is John the Baptist speaking, 
did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So the, the identity, the revelation of Jesus Christ is embedded in the baptism of John. That people would know that this is Christ. Verse 31, and John bore witness. Verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. The Holy Spirit possessed Jesus, stayed with Jesus, empowering him for his earthly ministry in his humanity. I myself, verse 33, did not know him. I wasn't sure for sure. In the back of my mind, I kind of wondered, is this the Christ? Is this really the Messiah? But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There it is. One of the major reasons that Jesus was baptized by John was to, number four, give a clear confirmation of his identity. When John was sent into ministry, he said... In 134 there, the one who called me into ministry told me that I would baptize one and the Spirit of God would come upon him and that that was going to be the Son of God. So John had been watching for this. He had been baptizing people and watching for the Spirit of God to fall on him. And then it came. It happened very, very clearly. Number five, um, you could say it was the moment of his ordination into full-time ministry. This baptism marks... In a sense, the ordination of Jesus into his full-time ministry. From now on, the Gospels are all about Jesus, and it's full speed ahead for the next three years to the cross. Do you know what an ordination is? An ordination is is an examining. It is a time when you are scrutinized. You stand before the people if you're going to go into full-time ministry. We have an ordination coming up. Tom Jesserin is going to be ordained. Following that, Pastor Mark is going to be ordained. Following that, Pastor Everett is going to be ordained. All right? And uh, so in the next year and a half, there's going to be some ordinations around here. And you'll be invited to sit in. They're very interesting. For about three hours, they will stand before an audience of pastors and qualified uh, spiritual leaders. And they will grill him, grill their testimony, ask him about their call to ministry, ask them Bible and theological questions. And they will lay hands on them and pray and affirm their giftedness for ministry. And they are ordained. Look what happens here. Look who approves. Look who ordains Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, look what he says, with whom I am well pleased. He meets the standard. He meets the standard. This one who got in the water, just like sinners, to identify with sinners. This one upon whom a dove, the sacrifice for the poorest of sinners, identified with. This one, God the Father looks at him and says, finally we have one that pleases me. You see, every single sacrifice to date, every single lamb, calf, goat, or dove, even though the instruction was it was to be without spot, was it without spot? Of course not. It had lice. It had a scar underneath its hair. It had manure between its hooves. It had some unclean part stuck in its craw. 
Could it really be that a calf or a bull or a goat or a sheep or a dove could be perfect and God could say, I'm well pleased. This is perfection. This is it. Only Jesus is perfect in God's eyes. Only Jesus is the one that can fully satisfy the demands of a holy God. And there it was pronounced at his baptism as he's sent into ministry to head to the cross. Amen? Aren't you glad that God looked at Jesus and said, I'm well pleased in this one. And that he could go to the cross and Jesus would say, it is finished. His father had to turn his back on him because our sin was upon him. At this point, father didn't turn his back on him. There was no sin in him. It was our sin at the cross that made the father turn his back. But in him, this perfect spotless lamb, God is well pleased. Is he your savior today? Is he your your sacrifice for sin? I hope you've identified in baptism with Jesus. There's all kinds of other questions about baptism. I'm going to put a a couple pages of Q&A about baptism out on the counter next Sunday, by next Sunday, hopefully by Wednesday night, but by next Sunday. I've already got it. I've been working on it. Because there's people with all kinds of questions then about baptism. If I was sprinkled, should I get rebaptized? If I was baptized before I was saved, should I get rebaptized? And all kinds of questions. I'm going to put a Q&A sheet out on the thing, out on the counter, if that should be helpful to answer the rest. But here we have John affirming the public ministry of Christ. Next week, the temptation of Christ. Let's stand and be dismissed with a word of prayer, okay? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good hand upon us in so many ways. Thank you for the word that comes alive as we gather together and your Holy Spirit opens our eyes to truth and you stir our hearts and and thank you for the precious time reflecting upon the body and blood of our Lord. Thank you that you looked at our Lord Jesus there in that Jordan River coming up out of the water saying, in this one I am well pleased. He satisfies you. And thank you that our identity with him, we're immersed in him, that you can be satisfied with us as well ingrain these truths in us, encourage us and build us up because of it. Teach us now as we go to class. In Jesus' name I pray.